Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the law trying to catch up with Donald Trump while he appeals to his followers for donations to support his lawlessness with promises to purge the FBI if he is re-elected to the presidency in 2024. Following Monday's seizure of documents by the FBI at Mar-a-Lago, today Trump pleaded the fifth refusing to answer all questions in a deposition before the New York Attorney General in a civil case against the Trump Organization. Joining us is Caroline Fredrickson, a distinguished professor from practice at Georgetown University, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center and the President Emerita of the American Constitutional Society. She's the author of The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts and Fair Elections, and The AOC Way, The Secrets of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Success, and during the Clinton administration, she served as a special assistant to the President for Legislative Affairs. We'll discuss her op-ed at the New York Times, The Lawless GOP Response to the Raid at Mar-a-Lago. Then we'll look into other cases involving the theft or mishandling of classified material and speak with Chris Whipple, a multiple Peabody and Emmy Award-winning producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and at ABC's Primetime. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Defined Every Presidency, and his latest book is The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shaped History in the Future. And his forthcoming book is The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House, and we will discuss Biden's current winning streak. Then finally, with the Department of Justice charging a member of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps in a plot to kill John Bolton along with another unnamed senior official, we'll speak with Abbas Malani, Director of Iranian Studies and Professor at the Center on Democracy Development and Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. He taught at Tehran University's Faculty of Law and Political Science, where he was also a member of the Board of Directors of the University's Center for International Relations. His books include Lost Wisdom, Rethinking Modernity in Iran, The Persian Sphinx, and The Shah. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Caroline Fredrickson, a distinguishing visitor from practice at Georgetown University Law School and a senior fellow at the Brennan Center and a president emerita of the American Constitutional Society. She's the author of The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts and Fair Elections, and The AOC Way, The Secrets of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Success. And she previously served as the director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office and as general counsel and legal director for Nariel Pro-Choice America. And during the Clinton administration, she served as a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. And she has an op-ed at the New York Times, The Lawless GOP Response to the Raid at Mar-a-Lago. Welcome to Background Briefing, Caroline Fredrickson. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. 
Well, thanks for joining us, Caroline. And President Trump is already monetizing the outrage over his, well, I'm not sure you can call it a raid. I mean, they're executing a a search warrant, the FBI were, signed by federal judge, Judge Reinhardt in Florida. And apparently they found something between 10 and 15 boxes, which they removed from Trump's premises. Uh, the FBI targeted three rooms, a bedroom, an office, and a storage room, which suggests that they perhaps had some inside knowledge. But I'm not sure there's really, as much as the Republicans are huffing and puffing, and Trump is obviously scamming the, his followers yet again, asking for money, I'm not sure that there's any kind of national movement. I mean, the people that were demonstrating in support of Trump across the street from Mar-a-Lago, there were only two of them waving a Trump flag. So, well, we'll see what happens. I think Donald Trump is trying to whip everybody up because he wants to put more money on his, in his campaign accounts, for sure. And the Republican leadership is doing the same um, for the same really venal reasons. They want to monetize it, as you said. Um, and what they're monetizing is the celebration of lawlessness and lawbreaking. Well, that's uh, a bit odd, isn't it, for the party of law and order? Well, one would think. I mean, it used to be their brand, right? I mean, it used to be that, sure, they had plenty of um, of presidents and other leaders who um, were involved in shady activities, but they at least pretended that they were believers in law and order. At least there was law and order for for the average folk. Um, I mean, think about Richard Nixon. He He certainly was not one of those one can think of as being the most um, honest and upright of uh, American presidents. And yet, you know, he, 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 he claimed he had done no wrong. He didn't embrace the wrongdoing. So given that it looks as if there was, a, as I mentioned, somebody on the inside that helped the FBI, they obviously knew what they were uh, looking for. Apparently, they, Judge Reinhardt reviewed the prosecutor's evidence and asked a lot of questions about the sources and the urgency. So it was a, it was all done by the book. But I think one of the telling things, Caroline, is that this was done 92 days before the November elections, and the and the DOJ has a rule, I believe, that you don't want to get involved in political lawsuits within 90 days of an election. So is there some relevance to that timing, do you think? Um, no doubt. I'm sure they're trying to be as careful as they can to distance um, any actions from the election, although Trump is not yet on the ballot, so it doesn't actually have anything to do with an upcoming election specifically. But um, you know, they are super cautious, and they, you know, they know that there could be a partisan, uh, the inflaming of partisans, which uh, you know, clearly is happening, and Trump is trying to make it happen. But I think you know this is a very cautious Justice Department. I think they definitely did everything they could to dot their I's and cross their T's and make sure that um, they moved at the right time uh, with a sufficient amount of evidence, following all the rules. Um, and, you know, honestly, I, you know, I, I, I lament that this is going to foment partisan engagement on the far, far right, the Trump followers and Trump himself, um, but had to do this. I mean, this is what rule of law is all about. There was a massive amount of, of flagrant lawbreaking uh, the Presidential Records Act has to have some meaning. And if they don't enforce it, which president is ever going to follow it ever again? Uh, yesterday on my program, Caroline, I spoke with Peter Strzok, a former 
deputy head of uh, counterintelligence at the FBI, and, and he was the FBI agent appointed to the Mueller, Mueller inquiry and set up the special counsel's office. He also was the head of uh, the investigation into Hillary Clinton's uh, server. Of course, he said there's no comparison between the Hillary Clinton's server and yeah. what Trump has done. And being a counterintelligence officer, he was saying that how reckless and dangerous it is to have all of that highly classified material at Trump's place where, one, he has a history of bragging about secret stuff and impressing his guests at Mar-a-Lago with classified information, not to mention Russian officials inside the Oval Office, and um, that, you know, anybody could have gotten in there, uh, you know, a Cuban illegal working for, for the Russians could have come in there as a as a cable repairman, you know. In other words, there was absolutely uh-huh. no security for these highly classified documents. So the uh, the recklessness is breathtaking. Well, it's really it's just incredible to think um you know he he is so heedless in in what he does and who knows, you know, I'm sure he has, you know, letters from um from the North Korean um leadership, he has uh perhaps other communications from from Putin or others or um, strategic information about American military operations, who knows? But certainly any number of those things that could be strategically harmful to the United States if they fell into the wrong hands, um, certainly embarrassing. Uh, and uh, And the idea that he just packed up these boxes and took them off to Mar-a-Lago, which is, by the way, in Gulf, um, not exactly, as you mentioned, the most highly secure of uh, of locations. Um, it's just mind-boggling. And again, I'm speaking with Caroline Fredrickson, who's a distinguished visitor from practice at Georgetown University Law School and a senior fellow at the Brennan Center and the President Emerita of the American Constitutional Society. During the Clinton administration, she served as a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs and she has an op-ed at the New York Times, The Lawless GOP Response to the Raid at Mar-a-Lago. Well, as your article the New York Times, Caroline Fredrickson, uh, The Lawless GOP Response to the Raid at Mar-a-Lago points out, there, there is, of course, the ongoing threat of Trump laying the groundwork to steal the next election, uh, having come close in a coup attempt uh, on January the 6th, where we all know what happened then, and instead of uh, him being pulled over and literally held to account and literally being in an orange jumpsuit as we speak, he keeps dodging bullets. He's dodged. He's been one step ahead of the sheriff all his political life and his business career, and just today we're learning that in the deposition uh, before the New York Attorney General in a civil case, Trump pleaded the fifth on all counts. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. so, but in spite of all of this, he is laying the groundwork to steal the next election, and his people are getting elected uh, to in key offices like secretaries of state in key swing states. So that's right. What's the plan here? How do, how do we stop this? You can't discourage people uh, or Democratic voters from voting by saying the game is rigged against you, and you know, we've got to go beyond outrage. So what's the, Oh, what? absolutely. Well, first of all, let me just mention, though, that one of the things that's important to say is that 
Trump is not the only candidate out there or prospective candidate who is running on his lawlessness, on unflouting rule of law. There are candidates across the country in the Republican Party who actually participated in the January 6th coup attempt, um, some of whom are subject to criminal proceedings. I mean, this is the face of the Republican Party right now. So, I, you know, I, I think we have to understand that those of us who actually believe that rule of law matters um, and that elections should matter, that is, people's votes should count, um, and we shouldn't have a system in which um, you have people uh, trying to intimidate, surveil um, uh, other people who want to vote, um, who aren't going to vote for Donald Trump or his approved candidates, um, as well as those who are trying to change the election rules so that they are highly uh, difficult for people to maneuver, except for the people who favor Donald Trump and his allies. So, you know, that being said, that's going on, obviously, but we are the majority. The people who believe in rule of law and the people who believe in the democratic process are the majority in this country. I mean, look what just happened in Kansas. That is really just incredible. I mean, the people of Kansas stood up to the far right wing of the GOP and said, no, we are not going to deny women access to reproductive care in, in, in Kansas. Um, and we kind of take that as, 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 a, um, as a message for the rest of us. We need to overwhelm them with our votes and our engagement. We are the majority. We have the ability to do that. Yes, they've rigged the rules, but even with rigged rules, we can win because there are enough of us to overcome uh, even those problems. And in terms of Trump's control of the GOP, which is, seems absolute, we mentioned the, that he's you know the grifter in chief, and that this is the perfect grift for him to raise money from his followers, which he's been doing. You know, I think he's raised considerable amount of money, maybe half a billion so far. So he's got quite a lot of money, and he's going to make a lot more money out of the the ginning up all this outrage over the what happened in Mar-a-Lago with the FBI. But clearly, the other uh, reason he's running is because of his gigantic ego and the fact that his brutal father drilled into him, you can't be a loser, you've got to be a killer son. So the guy's psychologically damaged and cannot face the fact that he lost an election. He's so ego and, and his psychic damage combined would indicate to me that he doesn't want... DeSantis and these other people running. So do you see a kind of collision coming here? Because you can see even even Lachlan Murdoch, uh, who ostensibly runs Fox News from Australia, um, he's starting to distance himself along with his father. But at some point or other, do you see a showdown coming? Because uh, there's got to be a number of Republicans who recognize, and I'm sure Mitch McConnell is chief among them, that Trump is a complete disaster. But well, this, I, go ahead. I'm sorry, Ian. I just didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I you know, I think the the, the proof's in the pudding, right? We'll, we'll have to see. But I think when you look at the Republican primaries that just have taken place, um, and uh, throughout the summer, I mean, Trump Trump's endorsed candidates didn't win every single one of those primaries, but a lot of them did, and a lot of the candidates, as I said, um, who uh, are uh, 57 candidates at a minimum, are people who took part in the January 6th coup attempt. So I think, you know, it may be that there are some, um, I used to call them wiser heads, because that really isn't what I would call Lachlan Murdoch, but 
um, perhaps those who, who understand who are looking towards a longer horizon for the Republican Party and their whole right-wing agenda understand that Trump could maybe blow it up. But I think in the short term, he's got a pretty firm control. I mean, look at what Kevin McCarthy had to say. I mean, and Ron DeSantis uh, defended Trump and defended um, and attacked the FBI himself. He called he called the United States a banana republic um, because, uh, I guess, law enforcement following the law makes us a banana republic. But in any case, I think, you know, as I said, I think the proof is in the pudding. He's still got a pretty strong grip on the GOP and maybe the, you know, Murdoch or some others uh, will be able to kind of engineer somebody like DeSantis moving forward, who, you know, let's face it, by the way, is, is just as nutty. He just might not present quite as, quite as kooky, but I mean, his ideas are pretty, pretty much the same. Well, he's a political thug. I think he's in, he's just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, because he's a, he's a little smarter, isn't he? Than Trump. And I, Trump's cunning, but I don't think he's smart. He seems to be, but we'll see if he has the same kind of pull um, on the far right base that 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 Trump does. But uh, but again, I think Trump. You know, we'll have to see what happens. But I think he's still he's got a pretty strong grip on that party. Well, that's for sure. So, but just in the last couple of minutes, then Caroline, since we the answer you gave is is obviously the. <laughs> What has to happen, which is with all of these crazy people that Trump's getting in there, particularly in key Secretary of State's positions, and he's, and he's also, the Trump movement is also going down, down ballot, down into election canvassing boards, school boards, you name it. So it's a, it's a massive anti-democratic movement underway, uh, and that the way to defeat it is for Democrats to show up at the polls so that these crazy people don't get elected. That's obvious. So what's your sense of uh, of where things are? Because, you know, I often think about Joe Biden like Rodney Dangerfield. You know, I can't get no respect. I mean, he's, he's doing pretty amazing stuff lately. Is he going to get some respect soon? Do you think is there a turnaround? Because there are a lot of pundits writing his political obituary. I know. I think that's, you know, let's face it, that's premature, too. Um, and, uh, you know, I think pundits love to write these things. But Biden's had a remarkable record this summer. He's He and the Democrats in Congress have gotten some major bills through. Um, you know, let's let's hope they market them uh, in an effective way and make sure the American public knows how much they've actually achieved um, in terms of dealing with inflation, in terms of, of access to health care, in terms of dealing with climate change. Um, that's there. Um, so they need to run on it is what they need to do. And they need to explain it to people. They need to go out and market it. They need to, you know, actually start jumping up and down and saying what they've accomplished um, because it's been a lot. I'd also say Joe Biden has now appointed more judges to the federal bench than any president since, um, uh, except for JFK at this point in his presidency. That is really important. They are more diverse. There are more women, more people of color. Um, he has really um, made a massive effort to um, have his imprint on the judiciary in an important way. Um, and then the Democrats need to do everything they can to uh, to use the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe um, to impress upon the American people that if the Republicans take over the Senate, we'll have the worst possible situation in terms of future uh, vacancies will not be able to be filled by Joe Biden. Um, so 
we need to really focus on that. And if there's another opening, say, on the Supreme Court, if the Democrats are not in charge of the Senate, they will, the Republicans will thwart Biden's ability to fill that opening. So um, those are things that the Democrats need to run on and can run on. And they're really important messages that I think will, will move the American people. Caroline Fredrickson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Caroline Fredrickson, who's a distinguished visitor from practice at Georgetown University's Law School, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center and the President Emeritus of the American Constitution Society. She's the author of The Democracy Fix, How to Win and Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts and Fair Elections, and The AOC Way, The Secrets of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Success. And she previously serves as the director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office and as a general counsel and legal director for Narrow Pro-Choice America. And during the Clinton administration, she served as a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. And she has an op-ed at the New York Times, The Lawless GOP Response to the Raid at Mar-a-Lago. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a look into other cases involving the theft or mishandling of classified material. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Chris Whipple, a multiple Peabody and Emmy Award-winning producer of CBS's 60 Minutes and ABC's Primetime. He's the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Gatekeeper, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency, and his latest book is The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. And his forthcoming book is The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chris Whipple. Good to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris. And I uh, obviously I want to talk to you about the, your new book on Biden, The Fight for His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House, since Biden... Uh, <laughs> Sort of, I mentioned it earlier that he's sort of like um, Rodney Dangerfield. I, I can't get no respect, but he's doing quite well uh, in spite of having been written off by a lot of pundits as uh, you know dead on arrival. But uh, yeah, a couple of weeks, yeah, yeah. So I want to talk to you about that. But just to start out on on the big story about the FBI so-called raid, uh, although it was based on a on a federal judge Reinhardt signing off on it. And it looks as if they had an insider there that told them exactly where to find the material. And obviously, there's a lot of outrage that Trump is ginning up. He's also monetizing the outrage, asking for money. So I don't detect a lot of outrage. I mean, a couple of people with Trump flags on the bridge in front of uh, Mar-a-Lago, but they're huffing and puffing a lot. You don't see any kind of uh, national movement here, or even a militia movement, uh, which some people are afraid of, but I don't see it material. Well, Trump is doing what Trump always does, um, and playing playing the victim card, the uh, the target of the, uh, the, the, the grand deep state conspiracy. 
but it's a pretty old act by now. Um, and I, I can't imagine it's going to get that much traction. Um, I, I also think that there is much more to this than meets the eye. It's it's hard for me to imagine that Merrick Garland would have signed off on such a dramatic uh, step by DOJ and, and, and the FBI unless there were something really serious here. This has got to go way beyond simply tidying up uh, the Presidential Records Act. Um, I suppose there's no such thing as a garden variety um, a classified information case, but it's got it's got to be extraordinarily serious, I think, for Garland to have taken this step. Well, since you've studied previous White Houses, what <clears throat> similarities are there in terms of classified material being purloined? I, I recall Sandy Berger, who was President Clinton's national security advisor, he was caught stuffing some documents from the archive, National Archives down his trousers. I think he got disbarred and did to do community service, did he not? Yeah, that was uh, back in 2004. Um, this actually goes back to, at least to 1996 with the CIA director, John Deutsch, um, who worked for Bill Clinton for, for a period until he fell out of favor. Uh, Deutsch was a brilliant... Um, uh, professor uh, from MIT who helped to pioneer the drone program. Uh, but he, <clears throat> again, fell out of favor with Clinton the day he resigned. Uh, some CIA technicians went to his house and, and found 31 files with highly sensitive top secret information on his, on five unsecured computers that he had. And there was, uh, there was code word material. Um, there he he wound up he could have served 10 years but as usually happens in cases where high-ranking officials are caught uh, he he wound up uh, simply pleading to a misdemeanor um, and he was he was actually pardoned on uh, by bill clinton on his last day in office uh, <clears throat> then fast forward as you mentioned um, 2004 sandy berger was reviewing classified documents at the National Archives. And as you mentioned, he, he smuggled some of them out in his socks and stuffed into his pants. Uh, it's still kind of a mystery to this day exactly what he, why he was removing those documents. Uh, but again, at the, at the end of the day, he wound up uh, losing his security clearance and his law license. But, um, but again, he, he, he served no time for that. that that's the pattern here. And of course, most listeners will remember David Petraeus, uh, the CIA director who uh, infamously shared uh, classified documents with his mistress, Paula Broadwell. <clears throat> and once again, um, Petraeus could have been looking at a, at a prison sentence, uh, but uh, paid a $100,000 fine and uh, wound up pleading guilty to a misdemeanor. Yeah, and I don't think it did his marriage any good, right? Well, I don't know. I don't know about <laughs> So why then, uh, I mean, the, the difference is that with presidents have the ultimate authority to declassify anything, or classify anything for that matter. Now, Trump is not, not the president, but could he make that argument that I'm the one who decides what's classified and what's not? I think it would be a pretty, he could certainly try to make the argument he's, he's made uh, 
he's made even flimsier, uh, more outlandish arguments already. Um, I understand that he's suggested that uh, that the FBI, anything the FBI found must have been planted, um, for which obviously there's no evidence. So um, Trump will do what Trump always does, uh, which is try to uh, tr try to blow a lot of smoke at, at this. But as I say, I, I I think that um, we're unlikely to hear any kind of explanation or statement from DOJ or Merrick Garland. Uh, they, they don't want to be James Comey all over again. I think they've learned that lesson. But at the same time, I think that we're going to learn more about this as time goes on. And, and I can't help but think that the other shoes that will drop um, will be pretty serious. Well, we could learn a lot about what happened if Donald Trump is prepared to release the inventory of what was taken, which has been provided to him I, by the FBI. I wouldn't hold my breath if I were you. <laughs> so isn't there a problem here in terms of the retaliation threatened by people like Kevin McCarthy and other top Republican officials? <laughs> They're going to just go after the FBI rooted out, supposedly. And it's the same thing that's happening with uh, Trump's GOP targeting Secretary of State's uh, offices in all the various states, particularly swing states, where he can put his people in who are election deniers and charge of counting the vote, which is just a frightening prospect. But similarly, could that happen to the FBI and to the American intelligence services, that literally they could be purged by, and put in these unqualified Trumps, as you already saw them from the in terms of Cash Patel and Ezra Cohen Watnick, these dangerous people that Trump brought in, not to mention the, the complete incompetence that he put in charge of intelligence, like the congressman from Texas. Well, two two separate issues here. One one is 2022, and the other is 2024. If if Trump were to somehow get back into the Oval Office um, in 2024, anything could happen. Um, having having learned his lessons um, on his last go round, that would be a, you know a real threat to to many of our institutions. I think. But it, as far as 2022 goes, I mean, even if the Republicans were to uh, to win the midterms uh, by a substantial margin, and uh, and, and yeah, I think that we I think we would we might very well see a lot of um, uh, a lot of hearings, and and Kevin McCarthy would of course rail uh, against the FBI, and I'm sure there would be. Um, all sorts of people would be called to testify, but I, it, it, it might very well turn into a kind of Benghazi 2.0. I mean, there's there's a limit to what you can do unless you, you really can't expose wrongdoing. And my guess is that Merrick Garland did everything by the book here. And again, I'm speaking with Chris Whipple, who's a multiple Peabody and Emmy award-winning producer of CBS's 60 Minutes and ABC's Primetime. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. And his latest book is The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shape History in the Future. And his forthcoming book is The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. So let's turn then, Chris Whipple, to your forthcoming book, uh, which is The Fight for His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. 
Biden's had a pretty successful week, and there's some more uh, bills that he's going to be signing, along with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act uh, bills to improve the lives and and healthcare of veterans. Most of these things that he's doing, like fighting for to lower the price of prescription drugs, a cap on insulin at thirty-five dollars, which the Republicans fought against. Recently, they fought against a bill to stop oil companies from gouging American consumers at the pump. I'm astounded at how unpopular what the Republicans stand for, yet they have a chance of winning. So can you explain that disconnect, that it's so obvious that what Biden's been doing and what he's trying to do is to help the American people? And for the life of me, I'm not sure what the Republicans stand for, except tax cuts for the super wealthy? Well, part of the explanation has to do with what Joe Biden uh, faced when he came into office. He, he, he really confronted the most daunting set of challenges since FDR, uh, and only then to be confronted with a perfect storm of, of unexpected crises from inflation to supply chain problems to uh, Putin in, invading Ukraine. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there is a kind of disconnect between the, the metrics here uh, when you look at the number of, of just the amount, sheer amount of legislation that, that Biden uh, will have passed uh, shortly if the reconciliation bill passes this week. Um, there's a disconnect between his, his success at passing legislation and his approval rating for sure. Um, but, but I think a, a lot of that has to do, obviously, with inflation, uh, with the continuing uh, pandemic, which, again, may be, may be starting to recede in the rearview mirror, but it's been persistent and, and has lasted um, longer than most Americans thought it would. Uh, and it's it's been a really tough uh, period uh, for for any president to navigate. Um, so, but you're quite right that there is this sort of um, paradox that um, that Joe Biden may well be, uh, by the end of this week, um, the most successful president since LBJ in terms of the just sheer number of programs he's passed, uh, <clears throat> and yet has, um, has approval numbers that are barely higher than Trump um, when he was in office. So go figure. Well, what I find extraordinary, though, is that Biden has managed to get this massive amount of legislation done, and so much of it is needed, and so much of it does benefit the average American, yet he's got a thin majority in the House and and virtually no majority in the Senate, 50-50, requiring the vice president to vote as a tiebreaker, and yet, and you compare it to Obama, who had 58 senators, it looks as if Biden, as you say, you know, he's had the, he's going to have the best record since the extraordinary successes of LBJ in 65 and, and after the Kennedy assassination, when he had that sort of wind at his back. It's a pretty remarkable achievement, is it not? It is pretty remarkable, and and when you when you think about it, it's um, it's interesting because when Biden came into office, I think there was 
there were two schools of thought. One was that he 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 was elected to be the anti-Trump, just to lower the temperature, try to unify the country, and um, and then there was another school that that said that here this was an opportunity to be transformative, to be LBJ or FDR, and he, and there was a lot of um, scoffing and ridicule directed at that second school of thought. Um, and yet, after a long, rough passage, it appears that uh, that Biden will be transformative, um, and at least in terms of the legislation that he's managed to pass. Um, so it's it's a pretty extraordinary story. And, and in my book, uh, The Fight of His Life, um, which will be out in January, uh, but anybody can pre-order now, um, I really trace the first two years of the of the Biden presidency. And, and actually, I, I, I go back through that incredible transition from Trump to to Biden. And you may think that you've heard all of those stories of just how dangerous that period was. But um, trust me, you haven't. Uh, there, there's still untold stories that um, that I was able to uh, unearth for the book. Um, so it's a really extraordinary story. And um, it's it's been a fascinating uh, project for me. So you're talking about the period between the November elections and uh, Biden's inauguration in uh, January of 2020. Well, actually, uh, it goes back uh, 2021. It goes back. I, I go back even further, Ian. I mean, one of the one of the misconceptions about presidential transitions that most most people think that transitions began upon the election of the next president. The truth is, they begin almost two years prior. Uh, that's when the, you know, the likely nominee for the uh, the opposing party, in this case, Joe Biden, uh, has to begin preparing for a transition because it's a tremendous um, undertaking. Uh, and in this case, obviously, it was done against the backdrop of a president who refused to give up power. Uh, and so I, I, I follow this, this story from almost two years prior to Biden's, uh, to Biden's inauguration. And it's, a, it, it's an amazing uh, story of how, how a, few, uh, a few people, including some renegades within the Trump White House, managed to make the peaceful transition happen against all odds. Well, the one thing that I think stands out about this situation where you have an election in November and then the next year in, in January you have the new government come in. And the reason is that, that in the days when the Constitution was written, it took a long time by horse and buggy to bring people from the furthest states in the uh, 13 colonies or whatever to Washington. And that very fact ought to tell you that these fundamentalist originalists on the Supreme Court, like Alito and Thomas and company, they believe that you know the Constitution is frozen in time. Isn't that an example of how the Constitution needs to be updated? I mean, it's a crazy system, isn't it, to have that enormous lag between where the president, outgoing president, can get up to all kinds of mischief. It is. It is a crazy system, and and that's why it, it, 
they're looking at a number of reforms um, as we speak, um, including the Electoral Count Act. Um, but it's it's it is an amazing story. I mean, you you could you could uh, write a book about um, about this transition alone, and uh, and it's 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 really extraordinary because between the election and the inauguration, you have it's something like 78 days in which uh, the incoming administration has to put together the most the largest most complicated. Uh, corporation in the world, in effect, and you're doing it at a time of maximum vulnerability when all of your enemies know that you uh, you're vulnerable. Um, and the danger was not just on January 6, but it continued right up until 11:59 a.m. on January 20. And as I say, I, I have some of the untold stories uh, of that period. So um, it's it's a fascinating story. Well, Chris Whipple, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Chris Whipple, who's a multiple Peabody and Emmy Award-winning producer of, 60 minutes, of CBS's 60 Minutes and ABC's Primetime. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. And his latest book is The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shaped History in the Future. And his forthcoming book is The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the Justice Department charging a member of Iran's Revolutionary Guards Corps in a plot to kill John Bolton, along with another unnamed senior official. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Abbas Malani, who's Director of Iranian Studies and a professor at the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. He's the founding co-director of the Iran Democracy Project, and he taught at Tehran's University's Faculty of Law and Political Science, where he's also a member of the Board of Directors of the University's Center on International Relations. And his books include Lost Wisdom, Rethinking Modernity in Iran, The Persian Sphinx, and The Shah. Welcome to Background Briefing, Abbas Malani. Always a pleasure talking with you. Well, thanks, uh, Abbas. And what do you make of the Justice Department charging a member of the Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, who was apparently trying to hire a hitman here in the United States to kill National Security Advisor John Bolton, apparently in retaliation for the U.S. killing of the head of uh, the IGC, uh, Qasem Soleimani, in Iraq in January of 2020. I, I don't know the specifics of the case. I've read uh, what is available in the media, but I'm not surprised. The Iranian regime has been engaged in this kind of shenanigans uh, in the United States, much less than in Europe. Uh, in the last uh, two, three months, there are two cases where they have been apparently trying to do harm to journalists who are fighting with them. Uh, Masih Ali Najad, Ms. Ali Najad has been the subject. Uh, and uh, in Europe, uh, they've literally killed over 100 of uh, Iranian dissidents. Uh, so. It is par for their course, and uh, unless the West and the United States make it very clear to them that there is a high price to be paid for this kind of a terrorist activities in Europe and in the United States, they're going to continue. And apparently they, they offered this person, uh, this potential hit man here in the United States, $300,000 to kill John Bolton. 
there's a report as well that they also had somebody else on the list who a mother, an even higher value target who they wanted to kill for a million dollars, but we don't know who that is. So that's an interesting to speculate who that might be. Yes, I, I, I mean, there are a lot of people that uh, they would probably try to hit. But to me, the interesting aspect, uh, interesting aspect of this component of the pro- problem is uh, it shows how, in fact, depleted they are as a regime. This is a regime that in the past has used uh, uh, Islamic uh, uh, radicals, the Hezbollah operatives, its own members, its own uh, uh, diplomats in Europe to go after dissidents, to now be down to having to hire hitmen for their jobs and doing it so clumsily that from the first day, apparently, they were being taped, it shows both a level of mendacity and uh, a level of depletion of their appeal to uh, the devout. Well, hiring a hitman who's an FBI informant is definitely not great tradecraft. But what's going on in the broader sense, though, Abbas, with uh, Iran and its leadership? They seem to be pivoting towards Russia, and they've always, Iran's always had a pretty tense relationship with Russia. Obviously, during World War II, they uh, tried to occupy the entire country. So what's, what's happening there? I mean, Iran is, is apparently helping Russia with weapons and satellites, etc., for in their war against Ukraine? Uh, I think, uh, Ian, you, you've uh, put your hand on what I think is a major strategic uh, uh, shift in Iran. Uh, it has been going on for almost uh, uh, 20 years. Uh, I really literally wrote about this first in 2007. I said in, in current history, magazine current history, I said, and Mr. Khamenei is keen on pivoting Iran towards Russia and towards China because he believes uh, the West is a uh, declining force. The rising power is in the East. They don't ask about human rights. They're not worried about democracy. And thus he has been discreetly, uh, but in the last few years, openly repivoting Iran to now, uh, not just an ally of China, I think uh, Russia, uh, but almost a satellite state, because the way the Iranian media parrots Russia's line, for example, on Ukraine, uh, the way they parrot uh, the line on almost everything that Russia does around the world, the way they know, say nothing about China's abuse of its Muslim population, uh, all to me indicates that uh, uh, the shift has occurred uh, and it is a major shift, and it has long-term consequences. If the world is gearing up for a new Cold War, if there is a new China-Russia uh, hungry alliance uh, against democracy, uh, then Iran uh, will be an important part of this new calculus. Well, Iran's already got deep economic ties with China, right? So what do the military ties with Russia involved, particularly in terms of uh, Ukraine? Well, clearly, uh, the, the, in terms of the narrative, uh, completely repeating the Russian line that this is a NATO's fault, it is a fault of the United States, and uh, the special uh, engagement, police action, 
uh, is to prevent uh, NATO from a more disastrous war. And they have been uh, giving aid. Uh, some of it has been public. Some of it might have been discreet. A long time ago, Russia announced that it was hiring uh, mercenaries from Muslim countries to fight in the cities in Ukraine. I would be very surprised if Iran wasn't involved in that. And recently, uh, in, in the sale of this new kind of uh, equipment that Ukraine already says uh, is being used there. Uh, but in terms of China, I think what's interesting, and you're absolutely right, Iran has been trying to entice China into Iran. It has given it uh, a draft of a agreement, a 25-year agreement that literally gives China a right of first refusal on almost any contract anywhere. It gives China the right to have uh, intelligence presence, a, a, mili a base. I mean, it's just a remarkable deal. But China hasn't uh, taken the bait. China hasn't really invested much. China has invested a lot more in Pakistan. China has many, many, many bigger deals with Saudi Arabia, a challenger of Iran, with United Arab Emirates. So the Chinese don't think that uh, Iran is the bet that they want to put their money on. They think that, that Pakistan is a better bet. But Russia, desperate as Russia is, isolated as Russia is, it is taking the bait and uh, has turned Iran into its de facto satellite. So what's happening with the revival of the nuclear talks or the JCPOA, as it's called? My understanding is that the partners, excluding Iran, are close to an agreement and they're waiting for Iran to say one way or another whether they're going to resume the talks. Is that what's happening? Well, that was what was happening till about yesterday. Uh, you're absolutely right. The Europeans and the United States uh, offered a draft that they said was their final deal. Uh, and it's uh, take it or leave it to Iran. Uh, but Iran has essentially, in the last few hours, uh, seems to indicate that they're going to not take it. Kehan, a paper that directly speaks for Mr. Khamenei, has said this deal is a disaster. Uh, it's a non-starter. It gives Iran nothing and has left very little room for uh, negotiation. Uh, I don't think uh, the Biden administration is of one view on how far they want to go in giving concessions to Iran. There are some in the Biden administration who really want to revive the deal. There are some who have uh, clearly uh, more sober thoughts. Uh, but I think the ones with the sober thoughts uh, are now uh, in the um, ascendance because Iran has left very little room uh, for negotiation. And what Israel uh, essentially stole from Iran in terms of its nuclear archive seems to have given the world a window into you know, a lot of weapon uh, uh, directed activities in Iran, far more than anybody assumed. And that's one of the reasons, I think that's one of the sticking points in the resumption of the nuclear deal, because Iran says, we don't want any discussion of the past, but there are many things in the past that need to be discussed if Iran is to be convincingly moving away from going towards the bomb, uh, at the risk of talking a little too long for your response. But I think the Iranian regime, if you read between the lines, and if you read some of the announcements that have come out from some of the officials 
uh, is gingerly moving towards an announcement that they might well develop the bomb. They literally have said, it's all right, we know how to do it, we are not going to take any permission from anybody else, or why don't we do it? These kinds of hints are not accidental in Iran. There's nothing accidental in Iran. Uh, it's very well choreographed, and they seem to be dropping these hints for a purpose. So what then would be the strategy here uh, for a nuclear-armed Iran? From what I understand is that they do have enough fissile material for at least one bomb. So assuming they can get two or three together and do a breakout, I mean, the Israelis aren't going to sit on their hands. Obviously, Israel is incredibly vulnerable to a nuclear blast because it's such a small country. But this would create, would it not, the greatest nuclear hair trigger on the planet. It's much worse than Pakistan and India, who actually have an agreement not to strike each other's nuclear facilities. But, I mean, I can imagine Iran is going to target the Dimona reactor. And what would the point of a nuclear weapon be for Iran? It would only attract the possibility of the Israelis trying to preempt them. You know, I have long said that uh, uh, Iran shouldn't go after a bomb, uh, precisely because of uh, what you say, and because uh, a non-nuclear Iran does have a military position of prominence in the region because of its population, because of a, a lot of other things. A, a, a nuclear uh, arms race, which Iran can win, Saudi Arabia uh, has easy access to a bomb through Pakistan. Saudi Arabia can literally buy a bomb on the market overnight. Uh, so th to me, that's a foolish decision. And to for Iran to have gone down this path, I think, was wrong. It was wrong from the Shah's time. Iran should not have gone for enrichment. Uh, Sikh Hacker, my colleague here at Stanford, one of the most uh, prominent nuclear physicist in the world, uh, the head of Los Alamos for 12 years. He and I wrote an article oh, 10 years ago. We said if Iran, under the Shah and this regime, if they really didn't want to have the option for a bomb, they should have, like South Korea, forfeited the enrichment path. The United States suggested to Iran, go down, the technology will help you get nuclear technology. Look at where South Korea is in nuclear technology. Uh, without the enrichment. Iran should have gone that way. So to me, it was a, a foolish mistake from the beginning. Uh, but I think the Shah really did want to hedge his bet. He's on record saying that if Pakistan or anybody else gets a bomb, we want to have the bomb, we don't want to fall behind. Uh, but now uh, the Iranian regime, uh, particularly with the rhetoric that they have used, uh, if the Shah had gone nuclear, Israel would have been a supporter of it. In fact, there's some evidence that Iran and Israel and the then South Africa were working jointly in projects away from the eyes of the Americans to maybe help Iran come closer to a bomb. Uh, because Israel saw Iran as its ally. Uh, and Iran was its ally. And Iran is the natural ally of Israel. Uh, Iran has no historical animosity against Israel. Iran is where Jews have lived for 3,000 years, 3,000 continuous years. There's no other place other than uh, Israel or Palestine where Jews have lived for as long. Uh, 
So the regime not only insists on building all the instruments for a bomb, they keep sending missiles in the space, uh, putting uh, in Hebrew, uh, this is an Israel destroyer. They keep sending uh, uh, reconnaissance uh, planes over the nuclear facilities. Nasrallah, Iran's proxy in Lebanon, keeps saying we can hit the, the nuclear facilities. You can't constantly threat the destruction of Israel and think Israel is going to sit there and allow you to do whatever you want. So it's a wrong policy augmented by foolish rhetoric. Well, indeed. And in fact, in, in 1979, I think it was on September the 22nd, the Israelis and the South Africans fired off a nuclear weapon off Namibia, off the coast, and they tested the trigger for a thermonuclear bomb, which in effect is a neutron bomb. So, And then, of course, we know that the South Africans actually built about six nuclear weapons, but then they gave them up uh, when Mandela took over. So there's clearly a history there of cooperation. But just in closing then, the JCPOA is not going to happen. The collision course for a nuclear confrontation with Israel is on. There's no way to, to mediate us there. I mean, the Russians aren't going to be helpful. And you say the Chinese don't want anything to do with the, At least they're more interested in, in dealing with Pakistan. So pretty grim picture, isn't it? It is a grim picture, but I think, uh, and I, I don't think China wants a nuclear Iran. And I don't think even Russia wants a nuclear Iran. Russia and China both want Iran where Iran is, a weakened, isolated, desperate regime with angry population, with a women's movement that is on the march, with feelings for democracy on the rise, and for this isolated regime, China and Russia, and increasingly Russia, are the only place they can return to. And if Iran becomes nuclear, their dependence on Russia and its protection becomes less. So I think if anyone has a, a sway to convince Mr. Khamenei not to take the next step and go full frontal on a, a nuclear bomb, I think it is China and Russia, and I hope they do because I have never believed that Iran should develop a nuclear bomb because it is disastrous. It is disastrous for the region. And I am with uh, Henry Kissinger and Secretary Perry and Secretary Schultz, who passed away a few uh, months ago, uh, who were trying to ask the world to de-weaponize. Uh, there should be no weapons of this power of mass destruction. China, Russia, Europe, the United States, uh, Israel that have it should go the other way to now open a path for multiple countries to then develop a bomb. Iraq was about to develop a bomb. Uh, Israel bombed the, their nuclear site, Osirak. Uh, I, I lived in Iran till 87. I have no doubt in my mind, none. Uh, and this is just my mind. If Iraq had a nuclear bomb, it would have dropped one in Iran. Iraq dropped everything it had from uh, chemical weapons to uh, attacking cities on Iran. Saddam Hussein was a thug and a butcher. A thug and a butcher should not have a nuclear bomb. 
The Iranian regime is also thuggish and butcherish. Look at what it's doing to its people. Look at what happened last week to peaceful people who've been living in a village for a hundred years. They attacked the village solely because the majority of them are Baha'is. This kind of a regime. Right. Well, let's stay in touch as the situation apparently gets worse. And I appreciate you joining us here today, Abbas Malani. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Abbas Malani, who's Director of Iranian Studies and a Professor at the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law at Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. He taught at Tehran University's Faculty of Law and Political Science, where he was also a member of the Board of Directors of the University's Center for International Relations. And his books include Lost Wisdom, Rethinking Modernity in Iran, The Persian Sphinx, and The Shah. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. i